Esther chapter 9. We'll be kind of reading through the text as we work through the message this morning, but we've come to the end of our study of Esther again. I think it was 11 sermons over 14 or 15 weeks or some weeks we had off. Are you excited to move on from Esther? I realize that's kind of a trick question when a pastor asks that because you, I didn't hear any too enthusiastic uh, yeses or something like that. Thank you. Uh, no, if you say no, that's great. You want to hear more. If you would nod yes, that's probably more honest and you're ready to keep going. But again, it's kind of a trick question and really it's a question that's setting up uh, another question. And the question that I really want to get at is, what do you get excited about? What do you get excited about? Uh, and and ha- have you really thought about that? Have you thought about the things that really excite your heart, that really lift your spirits, that really cause you to respond in expressive ways and celebration? And so I don't just mean generally excited. Um, I mean something more specific. What kinds of what kinds of things do you get so excited about that you celebrate them? I mean, really intentionally celebrate them. And so I, I realize some families, and this may be true of some of you and your family background, some cultures in particular, some groups, they, they make big deals out of these kinds of celebrations and, and, and things. So even like birthdays, they can, it's a, it's, they're huge, huge occasions. And anniversaries are just over-the-top celebrations of, of anniversaries of all kinds, not just wedding anniversaries. And, 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 other, and certain holidays, they make, people make an unbelievably big deal about them. My mom was sort of this way. Uh, she was like the only one in my family that was inclined to this way. But uh, she loved to make holidays and special occasions special. I mean, she, she loved to go over the top and, and celebrate in, in significant, uh, big, lavish ways. Well, here's, here's the thing I'm getting at. And it's you can you can get an idea of what matters to people when you see what they celebrate. You can see what really matters, or or and not just what they celebrate, but what they don't celebrate. You can see what's really important. What we celebrate, what we don't celebrate, how we celebrate, it says a lot about us, doesn't it? What so what do you celebrate? What do you what do you get really excited about? What do you invite people uh, over to your house for? What do you cook food for? What gets you really excited? And not just you individually, but us together as a church. What, what gets us really excited as a church to celebrate? Uh, what makes us smile and sing and clap our hands and shout for joy and throw a feast and, and gather people together? What, what, is, what are those things? I mean, if I could be a little honest, I think, for us and with us this morning, I think our particular stream of the evangelical church, kind of Bible teaching, sort of reformed types of churches, we're probably not known for being big on celebration. Um, I, I, we're not generally known for being excessively celebratory. And so you can ask others and other streams kind of what marks our particular stream of the church. And, and they'd say probably the importance of the truth, which... Thankfully, yes, and we want that to be the mark that we're known for. Or identifying sin, which is obviously very important. Or, or uh, you know, even as in prayer this morning, identifying the idols of our hearts and smashing those idols. That's great. Joy and celebration? Probably not so much. Um, and, and, 
and which is unfortunate because all of those things, valuing God's truth, uh, a right understanding of our sin, the identification of those heart idols and, and, and wanting to put those away in our lives, those, those all ought to lead to this celebratory joy, shouldn't they? If we understand that right. But that's, that's not always not what we're known for. I, I'm not saying we're a gloomy, sad bunch. Don't get me wrong. But I, I don't know that this is kind of the thing that, that people, that we would say stands out as we think about ourselves. But when, when, when Christ returns, when, when, if there comes a point when in the purposes of, of God for even this church and when we no longer exist, I, I would hope, though, that as history kind of looks back on, on Baraka and on this, this church body, that, that there wouldn't be some statement. They, they didn't really understand joy. I, again, I'm not saying this is what this is going to be the case, but, but particularly we want to see a joy in the gospel that would, would characterize us and our gatherings and our life together as brothers and sisters in Christ. So because of all things, salvation is something worth celebrating, isn't it? Yes, thank you. Yeah, you better, amen. You know? <laughs> no. Uh, but the end of the book of Esther, it can help us here. Um, it's going to give the history behind a celebration that started 2,500 years ago and hasn't stopped since. And so the, the, if you remember when we started, the book of Esther was actually written uh, much longer after the events that its recording occurred. So it's written long after. So most people believe at least a decade after these events happened, the, the, the book of Esther was written. So the writer is writing uh, after all these things with King Ahasuerus, after he was killed in his own bed, he was assassinated um, by one of his his um, uh, people in his in his cabinet, as it were. Uh, so this is after Esther and Mordecai are off the scene. That's when Esther is actually written down and 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 passed along. And so as the writer is recounting this story, as he's recounting these events, these things, he he ends this book by helping to explain to God's people why they're still celebrating something and 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 why they should keep doing it. That's part of the reason that most agree that Esther was actually written. And so let me just give you two kind of summary statements this morning as we close out this book. And, and certainly I think that they represent this section. The first thing is this, is past salvation necessitates present celebration. So past salvation necessitates, and that word necessitates is going to be important, but it necessitates present celebration. Secondly, we'll see that that present celebration it anticipates this future culmination or consummation that's coming. So that's, that's the track we're running on. So first we'd say this, past salvation, it necessitates present celebration. And we'll see this in verses 20 to 32 of chapter 9 here. So it's not enough just to win the victory. If, if uh, a victory needs to be celebrated. So we are obviously still excited about our uh, uh, World Series title for the Atlanta Braves and the city's still, uh, I see the t-shirts and the hats everywhere. It's really good to have something to celebrate as a city right now. Um, but imagine after that World Series win by the Braves. Now, unfortunately, it was in Houston, but uh, still, there were a lot of Braves fans there and, and a lot of celebration. But imagine after that win that there was zero applause in the stadium. It was just silent. Imagine that even the, as we were watching it on television and the, the broadcasters and the announcers, they just uh, just a very monotone, deadpan, 
well, that's it, folks. We'll see you next season. And, and then it just goes on to the next show. I mean, uh, uh, imagine on the field. There are no high fives from the players, no smiles, no laughter. Again, just, just stone cold. No cheers from the stands, no parade when they got home, no reaction at all. Just like the same facial expression that you would see if you were watching somebody walk out of a dental appointment or something like that. I mean, just, just another thing. I mean, that would make no sense, would it? Because, because winning, it needs to be celebrated. Shouts of joy, they're supposed to ring out after there's a victory like this. Well, shouting and celebrating are also an important part of victory in what we've been seeing, this holy warfare. It's holy war. And so the, the shouting, the feasting, they, they give this opportunity to give praise where praise is due. It's, it's the, the, the shouting is, and the feasting, it's an opportunity to go on record expressing thankfulness to God for the victory that's been won and for the rest that we're going to see that's now enjoyed from enemies. I mean, this is not just true in Esther. This is, we can look back in earlier in history after the Egyptian army is buried in the Red Sea with all of their war machines, all of those chariots, all of those soldiers. What did Moses do? He leads the people in this huge song service. And they're singing praises to God. After the victories at Jericho and, and Ai, Joshua led the nation to celebrate this covenant renewal ceremony there at Mount Ebal. Joshua 8. After the Lord delivered His people under Judge Deborah, this, this warrior uh, uh, judge, and she led, she what? Led them in corporate thanksgiving to God. And this is on and on and on throughout Scripture. So many of the Psalms are these songs of thanksgiving to God for, for the way He's rescued His people, the way He's, He's delivered His people graciously from certain defeat. Many of the Psalms are recording those stories. The most notable example of this kind of celebration in the Old Testament in particular, for, for of this kind of celebration for salvation, is what? It's Passover. I mean, this is huge. And so God commanded His people to have this annual feast to remind themselves, to remind their children, and to remind their children's children. So you'll never, ever, ever, ever forget about how God protected them during that final plague and, and which, which again, uh, ultimately delivered them from bondage. So this Passover that was instituted and celebrated every year. And so all of these feasts, all of these festivals, all of these celebrations of Thanksgiving, they provide this context and background for what we're seeing here and what we're going to read here in this story about the beginning of this Feast of Purim. And so back up to where we left off last week. Look back in verse 17 of chapter 9. And we pick up. This was on the 13th day. Remember, this is after the Lord uh, has allowed for God's people to defend themselves against those who were trying to kill them and 75,000 um, are, are, are slaughtered and the Lord protects His people through this. So this was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day, they rested and made that day that made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and unrested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who lived in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. So 
so this is where we left off last week. So seen against that background, again, of those Old Testament uh, feasts and those other feasts and those, uh, what we see, the Feast of Purim stands out. It's, it's set apart from those others. And, and in a couple ways. One, it's not commanded by God. You notice that. It's very different from Passover, we could say, where the Lord says, this is what you will do. And this is a must. But here it's not commanded by God. It starts as this spontaneous celebration by the people of God. They gain, they gain victory and they just start singing and they start, uh, they're just full of gladness and joy and feasting. It just breaks out. And then what we find is Esther and Mordecai, they write this edict, basically making it very official, making this celebration very official and very obligatory as we're going to see, and this is the word necessitates, uh, making this uh, an obligation among the Jews. And so another thing that sets it apart is we're going to see a lot of horizontal aspects to this feast, much different than other Old Testament God-prescribed feasts. And so keep reading verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far. This is total, all of God's people. Verse 21, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday. So this is what this is what this is about. That word holiday is interesting. We have holiday. Uh, we just think of uh, it's kind of a national day off of work, that kind of a thing, and some particular reason we're celebrating. But the, the word in Hebrew is, it, it, or it's two words, it's Yom Tov. It's the word for uh, day and good. It just simply means good day. This was a this was a holiday. It's it's from a day of mourning into a good day. That's what it is. And it goes on that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Now this this annual festival that we're reading about here that was started back then it has been going on again now for over 50, over twenty five hundred years. Just think about that. 25 years, they still celebrate it today. It's in March usually. And, and it, like other national feasts, it's intended, it's intended to remind Jews of a lot of things, but one of them is, is and I, which is a desperate need for us, it's reminding them they're not just individuals. They're, they are part of a community. They're part of a family. They're part of a history. They're part of, they're part of this legacy of God's delivering grace. And this is the reason that all of the Jews are to do this in all times, in all places. They're, they're connected generationally and geographically. I mean, we have, we, we get a sense of this even with our like national holidays in this country. And so just uh, the, uh, not Christian holidays, but I mean, just we've celebrated Veterans Day and, and many of you gathered in some kind of gatherings and, and you're maybe in your town, there was a Veterans Day observance and, there was time to be together, and these are total strangers, but there's this commonality. You're, say, you're saying and you're communicating with those kinds of things, particularly like 4th of July. We're saying, I, I am more than just me. I am part of a community. I'm part of a history. I'm part of, I'm part of something bigger than me. So we, we, that's communicated even in, in, in our kind of holidays like this. But as Christians in particular, we, while we don't celebrate Purim 
as Christians, we need to see ourselves connected to other believers. This is who we are. We around the world, throughout generations, we are we are we just need to see ourselves as as part of the same story of God, uh, the same history. That's very important. Every Lord's Day, every time we gather, is really a celebration that serves that goal. This is why the church gathers on the first day of the week and always has and always does around the world. We're we're confessing that connection. But again, Purim, let me give you a little kind of uh, how Purim is even celebrated today and has been celebrated throughout history. It's still celebrated by Jews, again, usually a few weeks before Easter on our, our calendar. And so like many holidays, they would eat together. Again, feasting, just like it was first instituted. They give gifts to one another, and particularly they give gifts to the poor, uh, and in particular poor believers. And so those that are struggling, those that are sick or injured, out of work, uh, single mothers, widows, orphans, that kind of thing. They, they are very deliberate to give gifts to those in need. In addition to that, uh, something that's not in Esther chapter 9, but this is the way that it's celebrated today. So if any of you have ever been part of Purim celebrations, they will dress up. They will dress up, particularly the kids, kind of like we dress up for Halloween. And so they wear costumes and disguises and what those are communicating is what we've seen throughout this series and what we call this series, the invisible hand of God. It's You see God disguising his activity, his disguising himself in the book of Esther. He's there, he's working, but in ways that are, he's working incognito. And so so Jews today, will they'll dress up and, and, and to kind of communicate that. They get dressed up, they go to the synagogue. The entire story of Esther from beginning to end is read two times during uh, Purim. They read it on the first night and they read it on the next day of Purim. Um, and, and whenever Haman's name is mentioned when they're reading, we should try this, they boo, they hiss, they stomp, they, they have these little noisemakers and they, they try to blot out his name as they're reading through through this account. And, and the other thing they do is they drink more alcohol than they would normally. I don't mean they get drunk. But they, if they would normally drink a glass of wine with dinner, they would drink two glasses of wine. Uh, they're, they're, they, are, they want to loosen their inhibition so that they can be exceedingly happy and joyful in their celebration. This is part of how it's observed today. And so that just gives you, I'm just saying, this is the connection and this is still going on. It's, it's continued on in perpetuity. I'm not saying it's all everybody that celebrates it today remembers the real intent, but this is... It is still going on. Verse 29, let's pick up. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them. And as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their feasts and their lamenting, the command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. So Jews near and far, everywhere, at all times, are obligated to feast, to rejoice, to be glad, to give presents to one another, to give gifts to the poor. And this celebration again is to go on year after year after year after year. Now back up, verse 23. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do 
and what Mordecai had written to them. Because again, it was spontaneous at first, then it was written down. And here's a reminder what all of this feasting and all of this celebration is, and all of this remembering is about. Verse 24. And so this is recounting this kind of summary of everything we've seen so far in Esther. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is cast lot, so pur, this where we get purim, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim after the term poor. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them and that without fail, they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. You think this is serious that they keep this going? I mean, over the, how many ways can you say this? We, we're not going to let this fall into disuse. This is going to go on. This has got to happen. We're obligated to keep this going. We cannot fail in this. So none are exempt. Why? Here's the point. Because this past salvation, this past rescue and deliverance, it calls for it. It necessitates, it obligates this present celebration. We have this, we have this, obligation even now wherever we sit within the history of the world as God's people this is what this is how this is written to celebrate the Lord's past deliverance oh you think about what we just read and you think about again how this compares to other feasts that have been instituted by God when you you look at you look at those instructions you look at the way that the edict is written here by Mordecai and Esther, nowhere in any of these instructions do you find explicit uh, an explicit word about uh, you know giving actually praising God for His deliverance. It says nothing about that. Nowhere do you find any instructions about reminding their children or their grandchildren about how faithful God was to them. Like you like, again, you compare that to the Passover instructions, which is very explicit. It almost seems as if Again, if you're just reading it on the surface, you could have obeyed Esther and Mordecai's edict. You could have obeyed this to the letter and gone through the whole two-day celebration without ever thinking about God or mentioning God. I mean, like you could, it kind of like, remember back in chapter 4 where they're feasting and lamenting and, and the Lord's name isn't on their lips and, it, and there's, there's, there's no vertical dimension to it. And, and is, that, is that the case here? Is this... Is there no vertical dimension to this praise and this feasting? Like they could have printed, you know, Esther is the reason for the season t-shirts or something like that and, and just sat around on their couches and watched football or whatever the equivalent was and just gorge on food and uh, kind of like Christmas is for a lot of people. There's they no thought of, of, of Christ and, and what the significance of this is. Is that what could have happened? Is, is that what was happening in this initial Celebration. It, does that mean that, that they were wrong to keep this going, to celebrate Purim? This should have never started, or certainly they should have shut this thing down because they, 
totally missed the point. And, and again, it's not even authorized by God. So is this something that was wrong for them? Not at all. Not at all. Again, the whole account of Esther is written to encourage encourage people to 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 participate in this celebration year after year. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's written to support this celebration of Purim, and so because of the because the heart of the feast of Purim was exactly right. It was a time to remember when the Jews got relief. That, that's what the text says. Rest from their enemies. When their sorrow again turned to joy. When their mourning turned to celebration. And the reason behind all of that, as we've seen throughout this book, while he's not named explicitly, it is unquestionably implicit. The, behind all of that is the invisible hand of God. And this is, it, it's, it's again, we've seen through this, it's actually spoken, it's, it's more Powerful the way that the author has written this. Showing the Lord in silhouette. How could anyone rightly remember the darkness changing to light, which is what has happened throughout the story of Esther? How could anybody rightly remember the time when God's people were about to be totally annihilated, wiped out by their enemies, and yet God rescued them and gave them relief when they had no reason to expect that was even possible? Without, how could they do that without thinking about God? How could they honestly celebrate Purim without seeing what God's invisible hand had done for them? Psalm 113, a psalm I was just happened to be in uh, in the last week, maybe it was the week before, uh, just reading in my own prayer time. But the psalmist says there, the, the poor are raised from the dust, the needy are lifted out of the ash heap and seated with princes. And so that's how the psalm ends, but well, that's almost how the psalm ends. And then the psalm ends with this call to, to praise the Lord. This is the right response when you've been lifted up, when you've been raised, when you've been when brought out of that total desperation that you were in, is to praise the Lord. And so yes, in Mordecai's letter telling the Jews about Purim, for instance, he talks about the king's role in all of this, Ahasuerus' role in the rescue of the Jews. But the language, maybe you picked up on this if you've been been with us throughout, it kind of surprises us as we hear the way the edict's written because the language in this edict, it overstates Ahasuerus' actual role in this. He was very passive. He was just responding. Other people were making decisions for him. He was just, you know, here's my ring, do what you want. I mean, he had very little involvement in any of this. He was, again, passive at best. But there is a king behind the king. The Lord. And in Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, he is not passive. He is, he was incognito, but he was actively working for the salvation of his people. He was actively working to make sure that all of his promises, going all the way back to Genesis chapter three, all of those promises are preserved. God was the true king who intervened, the, the true king who changed this seemingly certain course of history for the Jewish people. God was the one who reversed the Haman of uh, reversed the fate of Haman with that of the Jews. God's decrees are the ones that truly could not ever be reversed. And so Mordecai's letter, you know, you could it could be read and uh maybe the if a Persian, you know, just happened to pick that letter up, it would seem like this this letter is glorifying and giving thanks to King Ahasuerus. But any alert reader is going to see a higher invisible hand at work here. And certainly we should be able to do that. 
So this is the point. Past salvation, it necessitates this present celebration. That certainly, I think, has fuller meaning for us, doesn't it? I mean, this is what we're coming to do here in a moment. Uh, and, and so, again, I, I do think we probably, we probably struggle, honestly, to, um, to properly lament and be sorrowful and to rejoice. We, we tend to kind of live within the middle. And, and and have maybe sh- just in general across evangelicalism, maybe shallow versions of both. We don't realize, we don't acknowledge, we don't fully apprehend uh, the true depths of our sin and Id- our idolatry and our depravity to which we were born in and to which we all live. We, we don't seem to grasp how truly sinful our flesh is, how... how um, how much we're shaped by the world around us, how deceived we so often are by the devil. Well, the world, the flesh, the devil, we, we don't apprehend that. We tend to try to kind of manage our sin, to, to gloss over our sin, to hide it, to downplay it, to maybe, you know, we, we, we kind of give a nod to it to make it seem like we're serious about it, kind of give it the side eye every now and then and say, yeah, yeah, I know you're there and, and I don't like you, but, um, but, you know, we can manage, we can live together. We don't openly confess it often. We don't mourn over it. And therefore, when we, when we hear, when we remember the Gospel, when we testify to Christ's saving work and, and delivering us from sin and from its consequences, from its guilt, from its power, we're, we can be relatively unmoved. Listen, God became a man. He lived without sin. He died for your sin. He, he rose as your Savior. He put His Holy Spirit inside of you. He gave you a t- completely new nature. Where you sit right now in that chair is the closest you will ever be to hell. And that's because of Christ. It's only going to get better for us. Jesus has gone before you. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He's lived for all eternity in this perfect fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And, 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 and He loves you. He loves you enough to come to die for you. He, he has only love in His heart for you. He has, there's no mixture of wrath in his, in his disposition towards you if you are in Christ. None. He knows you. He seeks you. He serves you. He, he's prepared a place for you. He's gonna, he's gonna set a table for you. He's gonna sing over you, rejoice over you with joy. That's what scripture testifies to. That's worth celebrating. Salvation, salvation calls for celebration. And that cannot be truer for anybody than for us who are in Christ where we sit right now. And so we acknowledge our sin and, and that causes us to look to the Savior and, and to say over and over and again, we have something to celebrate. It's Christ. And so some of us, we, we, we need to learn to sing. We need to learn to shout. We need to learn to raise our hands, to throw feasts, to, to rejoice. And, and the way we celebrate and the reason we celebrate is, is a powerful testimony. Let me just say to you, parents, I'm talking to myself here. This is not a, by any way a scold. Parents, what are we celebrating in our homes? How powerful that is to our children to see that. What do we really get excited about? 
It's a lot more powerful for, for a mom and a dad to re, as they remember who God is and, 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 and revel in His salvation and rejoice in the ways that they see Him working in their lives than to simply just kind of, you know, constantly be spouting these moralistic religious platitudes at them and, you know, quizzing them on Bible trivia. Now I'm, I, I'm fine with Bible trivia and, and we want morality and we want good manners and all those things, but are you reveling and are you rejoicing and are you celebrating? The Lord and His salvation. Does that flavor your home? As a church, I mean, we're coming, what, Thanksgiving next week. This is like this gift that the Lord has given us in His providence on our national calendar here. It's not a Christian holiday. We're not commanded to observe Thanksgiving Day. We're commanded to be thankful always, aren't we? But what an opportunity to, to, to testify and of the Lord's goodness and to, and to be thankful. We're, walking, we're going into Advent season and, and we're going to spend four Sundays together. And, and, and many of you will be doing this in your home in various ways. And, and we're not, again, we're not commanded by God to observe this Advent calendar and to walk through these things. But what, enough, what a wonderful opportunity to, to, to presently celebrate right now uh, and feast and sing and give thanks and, and rejoice for God's past saving work in sending Christ. That's what it's about. It, it, what a wonderful opportunity to see ourselves again, not just as individuals, uh, but as this community, as part of this bigger story, a part of a history, a legacy of sovereign grace. Uh, we're we're going to, as we walk through Advent together on Sunday mornings, series will be a, a weary world rejoices. Our world is weary. We, we want to rejoice though, church. Not in Latin, some fake kind of trite, paste on a smile, my, Pretend our lives are not hard, not that. But in, in the midst of our sorrows, we rejoice because we, we have a hope that sustains us. And so we're going to be looking at Luke 1 and 2 and letting those songs that we find in those prophecies in those first chapters of Luke, let, let's join those. Let's make those and join in the singing of God's praises with those as we, as we tune our hearts to sing the Lord's praise. So past salvation necessitates present celebration. And quickly... Present celebration anticipates future culmination. So the edict to celebrate the Feast of Purim forever, that's not how the, <coughs> how the book of Esther ends. There's more. It almost seems awkward. It almost seems kind of tacked on, but there's this little postscript, and it's just three verses in chapter 10, the way that it's broken up in our English Bible. So, so much has changed for the better for God's people. Obviously, so much is reversed. So many redemptive reversals. So much have we seen the tables completely turn for the Lord's people. Darkness to light, death to life. That is, we have, we have been astounded by the way that the Lord has worked. But even though things are wonderful and amazing and there's been so much that's changed, not everything has changed. And there's kind of a downer here at the end of the chapter in some ways. This still ain't heaven. That's what he's kind of saying here. There's more to come. So verse 1, chapter 10. Just, what would be the first word? King Ahasuerus. King Ahasuerus. Now Mordecai and, and Esther, they're writing edicts in, and, in Haman's place. But who's still king? Ahasuerus. Is he a good king or is he a bad king? He's a bad king. He's a, he's a drunk, perverted, selfish, uh, erratic, bad king. And so in all of the celebration, they're not celebrating, yay, new king, better king. Nope, same old king. Did Ahasuerus fall down on, on his face, humble himself before the Lord? What must I do to be saved? 
No, we, we would wish we could read that, but that's not the case. So yes, the Jews, have they've received rest, relief from their enemies all around, they've, they've received rest from their enemies, except there is one enemy, King Ahasuerus, who's still on the throne. He's still the most powerful man in the entire world over the largest kingdom in the world up to that point in history. He's untouched. He's still in charge. He's still exercising his power and might for his own selfish interests. So King Ahasuerus... What it says, he imposed a tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. So we're talking about feasting and a tax increase. How many of y'all are going to have a tax increase party this year? And just gather all your friends and feast and just revel and just rejoice and thankful for taxes. No, but the celebration goes on. And, and because what? They have another king. They're part of a better kingdom. Now, where are they? Where are they? They're still in Persia. Not in Jerusalem. They're still under the old pagan king, not a new king. Their taxes haven't gone down. They've gone up. But they celebrate year after year. Is this their final home? If this is their final home, they really don't have any reason to celebrate. But if there's more to come, if there's there's a coming kingdom, a better kingdom, if they can, then, then they can celebrate even presently. Their present celebration, it's anticipating this future consummation better things to come and so verse 2 and all the acts of the power of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him are they not written down in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia so these other non-biblical books but historical books where these things are written down for Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. So, still have King Ahasuerus, that's not good, but they have Mordecai. And he's still number two. He is the second most powerful man in the most powerful nation on the planet. And he loves them. And he cares for the people. And he serves the people. I mean, there's a very different leadership here between Ahasuerus and Mordecai. Um, and and. Ashwaras, he leads through intimidation. We've seen that over and over again. Mordecai leads through affection for people. He, Ashwaras is a very selfish man. All of his decisions seem to be self-motivated, self-serving, self-seeking. Mordecai is very selfless. His decisions are, are, seem to be based on the well-being of the people. Ashwaras wants to have people glorify him. Mordecai wants people to give thanks to God. Ashwaras' people fear him. Mordecai's people, they love him, the text says. So Mordecai, he, and what he says, he spoke peace to all his people. The word peace. Shalom. Shalom. It's a very important word in scripture. Shalom is this world without sin. Shalom is the world without death. Shalom is the world without terror or oppression or abuse or, or fear or suffering. <coughs> Excuse me. When God was done creating the world, he said everything was good. A different word. But it was whole. It was complete. It was, Perfect. It was right. That, that in a sense is shalom. It characterizes, it, excuse me, shalom. It reflects the character of God. And then sin came in and it marred, it attacked, it vandalized that shalom. So everything's, everything's off now. And the result is we live in a world that's not full of shalom. It's altered. It's affected. It's, it's marred by sin. And Mordecai, though, he comes speaking shalom. Speaking life where there's death. Speaking truth where there are lies. Speaking, speaking light where there's darkness. 
And he gives them a vision of life, of what it could be like, and by the grace of God will be like when the Prince of Shalom, when the Prince of Peace does come. Isaiah 9, 6, which is Christ. So there's this present celebration on account of this past salvation and this and this pat, present celebration though it's anticipating this culmination of 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 perfect shalom but it's not here yet it's not here yet political leaders we know still aren't what they ought to be financial systems still aren't what they ought to be Everything isn't right in the world. We remain, remain restless and frustrated by what we see, by what we experience. It doesn't matter how many wars we fight, how many dollars we spend, how many elections are won, how many you know, prescriptions we purchase, how many worldly pleasures we grab onto. It doesn't matter. Shalom never fully comes until the Prince of Peace comes. And Jesus is the Prince of Shalom. Paul says in Ephesians 2.17, and he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. The gospel is provided. The gospel is preached. And, and it's what gives shalom, the shalom of God, the peace of God, peace with God, and opens the door for peace with one another. That's the point Paul's making there in Ephesians 2. And when the prince of shalom, when he comes again, and he is, he's bringing perfect peace with him. So when Mordecai speaks peace, he speaks shalom to the people. They love him because what? They hear this faint echo. This faint echo of this promised one who will come. Of the Messiah. Who's going to come and bring perfect peace. I, I have good news for us, brothers and sisters. Even for us on this side of the cross, who've already experienced this peace with God, and we have been reconciled to God in Christ, we we uh, positionally are already at peace with God. Perfect shalom, though, in all aspects of life, it's coming. It's a certainty. And so we celebrate now that Christ has preached peace to us when we were enemies. He's brought us near that past salvation. But, but our celebrating is happening in a world where peace doesn't actually abound. We still see turmoil and, 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 and the way that sin has messed everything up all around us. So our, our, our celebration is anticipating this culmination. This consummation of the coming full and final shalom. And so we've, we've seen, we celebrate a great reversal, but we need a greater reversal. And that's coming. When the king, the true king, the prince of peace, returns to reign forever. Well, this is a reminder that we need and that we have as we come to the table and worship, isn't it? It is, it is, it is true. So I'm going to go ahead and ask the men to come forward and I'll continue to talk for a moment. <coughs> but our past salvation, again, it calls for present celebration. And our present celebration, it points to this future culmination. Well, the table here, it gathers all of that up and it, and it preaches that through the bread and the cup that we're going to eat and drink in just a moment. We're remembering Christ together with thankfulness, hearts full of thankfulness, expressive thankfulness. And as we do so, what are we doing? We're to do this in, uh, until the Lord returns. We're anticipating His return. And so we may not celebrate Purim as Christians, and we don't, but that's, that's only because we have a better feast 
celebrating even an even better victory, a better reversal. That's what the Lord's table is meant to do. And so we celebrate how God has brought us relief from our enemies. We celebrate uh, that, that our sins have been forgiven. We celebrate that death has truly been conquered. We celebrate and we remember that God always keeps His promises. We remember that He will never, ever leave us nor forsake us. We remember there is no greater love than the love that Jesus has already poured out upon His people. These are the things we remember as we come and eat and drink in a moment. Let me pray. Lord, would You uh, help us as, as we as we celebrate, as we remember, as we give thanks in our eating and drinking, as we take our eyes off ourselves and our circumstances and our sin and we look to Jesus, we look to the One who secured our peace with You. Lord, uh, just fill our hearts with gladness. Gladness that's not again rooted in and shallowly in, in the situations and the circumstances of our lives and what our feelings are this morning, but gladness that's rooted in the atonement of Jesus Christ that's been provided for us. And the certainty of that being kept for us and guarded for us. And so use the, the, the what we can touch and taste and feel and smell, the senses that are engaged with the bread and the cup. Use these things, God, to to drive this, um, this reality uh, home in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.